Hey, it's Tom Panneries, host of Pop Culture Affidavit. A quick note before we begin. This episode has commentary of political, social, and religious issues. My views are very liberal, and they will be expressed in the episode. Thanks for listening. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 150, continuing the search. Hello and welcome to episode 150 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Man, 150 episodes and we are going on 12 years. I hate to be cliche, but it honestly does not feel like that much time has passed. Kind of amazed that I made it this far. Moreover, I'm amazed that I've found something to talk about for 150 episodes. I tend to do something kind of special for these episodes that are multiples of 25. On episode 25, I covered The Breakfast Club, which is my favorite movie of all time. On episode 50, I talked about my senior year of high school. It was called The Weirdest Year of Your Life. Episode 75 was a look at Saturday Night Fever, a seminal film that came out the year I was born. Episode 100, of course, was Megaforce. And episode 125 was the first Baltimore Comic Con after the lockdown was over. So when I realized that 150 was coming up, I thought I would do something that was especially interesting or had an impact on me over the years. Of course, that's easier said than done because I've already done 149 episodes about things I find interesting or that had an impact on me. So what do you even do with that? Well, the answer came to me while reading two books I'd picked up back in November. So Long As It's Wild by Barbara Jenkins and Mother Nature by Jedediah Jenkins. Both of them are follow-ups slash sequels to A Walk Across America and The Walk West, which I talked about back in episode 137. So you can consider this episode a follow-up slash sequel to that. Although I've got other stuff to talk about, because as I was looking through my list of books read in 2023 on Goodreads, I noticed that I'd read a few new books in the same vein this year. Then... When I thought about it some more, I realized that I've read or owned a total of 39 books and counting that fall into one of two categories, stories about trips across America and stories about Americans. And really, if you listen to episode 137 and its companion episodes last summer, you would not find that to be a surprise. Now, the quality of the books that I've read over the years certainly varies, as does the status of the writer and the impact that the book has had. I've read two John Steinbeck books from these categories, Travels with Charlie and America and Americans. But I've also read a couple of road trip recollections that were in the $1.99 Kindle store. 
Some of my travel logs on my list veer off into the personal, such as Cheryl Strade's Wild, which you can hear over on Required Reading. I think it was episode 68. But there's times where the writer's digressions into their personal lives instead of the trip become both selfish and distracting. But those personal stories are what seem to sell the novel more than a blow-by-blow recount of the trip that's being taken. And that makes me wonder if we're there for the experience or if they were there for the tawdry details. Maybe both. We certainly, in our culture, love stories of individualism, especially if the person is quote-unquote ordinary. I mean, we love celebrity memoirs as well, but I don't know. Maybe we just love people's stories. In my list of books are three that are more story than travel, yet do their best to show that most of our country at the times they were written. Tourbud Studs Turkle, Hard Times, which is an oral history of the Great Depression, and Working, a book published in the 1970s that focused on the lives and jobs of everyday Americans. The third is This Land, America Lost and Found by Dan Barry, which is a collection of essays and profiles that spun out of his writing for the New York Times. All three are fit to stand as records for their respective time periods. While Turco was writing about the Great Depression in 1970, and therefore it's more retrospective than the in the moment working or this land, He still gives us an enormously thorough look at what was a massive event in American history and formative for our experiences in the back half of the 20th century. Turkle, by the way, also has an oral history of World War II called The Good War. I plan on picking that up at some point and reading it. I still haven't. In the case of all three of the books that I've mentioned, the authors were searching for and capturing something, well... I guess you could say, as trite as it sounds, that we could call the real America? Honestly, there's no such thing as a real America, because that's a phrase that we often get fed by our politicians and pundits, and it's really meant to feed the toxicity in our culture. And there has been a lot of our toxicity in our culture lately, and it's 2024, it's an election year, and you're going to hear a lot of toxicity and toxic words throughout the year, throughout the election cycle. Just be prepared. Anyway, Turkle and Barry do not shy away from talking to as many people as possible. They try to get a cross-section of interesting stories and honestly give you a better look at our country than most history books or ill-produced documentaries. Studs Turkle essentially set the standard for books like this and the television reporter Charles Kuralt, who traveled the country in an RV to interview various people, took it up as well. Dan Barry sought to continue that legacy when he was writing for the New York Times, and since it collects roughly a decade of columns and stories, he gives us a prolonged snapshot of our country during the tail end of the Obama years and the beginning of the next administration. Like Turkle and Kuralt, He looks for the everyday and the ordinary in addition to those who are famous and exemplary. It's a time capsule as much as it is a bunch of profiles. As Barry gives us the literary equivalent of cinema verite, the average person is continuously interviewed and profiled, and for the most part, things are allowed to speak for themselves. 
politics do come into play, especially as the columns get closer to the 2016 to 2018 timeframe. But through it all, I never felt that Barry was gawking at anyone. And that is tough to do both as a writer and a person. Whenever I see stories like this in the Washington Post, it's always from the, quote, putting a human face on an issue angle, and it reeks of both sidesism or a forced point. And maybe that's me, who honestly, during the last eight years, has had a hard time looking upon someone without my own political prejudice in play. Now, I hate to put it like that, but I don't think I'm the only person who passes judgment at a glance once we meet someone and find out what their beliefs are. Moreover, it's getting harder and harder to reconcile your beliefs and someone else's, especially if they are anathema to one another. I guess that keeping the population polarized helps elected leaders gain or maintain power, but I can see how it has been poisoning the ideas of one's, quote, fellow countrymen for quite some time now. The idea of reconciling your ideals with someone who is on the complete other side of you is explored on a deeply personal level in two of the books that I read and wanted to dive in for this episode. Mother Nature, which by the way is spelled, you know, the words are spelled correctly, there's a comma between mother and nature. So it's mother comma nature, which is why I'm pausing <laughs> between the two. Anyway, Mother Nature by Jedediah Jenkins is about, according to the cover, a 5,000-mile journey to discover if a mother and a son can survive their differences. I'll be getting to that book, as well as his mother's book, in just a moment. Stick around. Your white privilege. What is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say I that? There's a difference between having a point of view and being a part of it. Are we trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names? No number? Just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the biggest mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <laughs> Questions. We don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers. We didn't even talk about Japan in this one. I think we did well. <laughs> the show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com, on iTunes, and right after the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com.
I just hope it's not boring to listen to. Like, oh my god, they're not going anywhere. Truly, they don't have answers. <laughs> well, I can also mention more Star Trek episodes. So when I did that multi-episode series about America in the summer of 2022, two of the books that stuck with me the most were the two Walk Across America volumes by Peter and Barbara Jenkins. If you don't recall them, I'll give you a quick recap. In 1973, Peter Jenkins was disenchanted by what he'd been seeing on the news and in our culture. This was at the end of the Vietnam War, the height of the Watergate scandal, and among the ruins of the counterculture of the 1960s. So with his dog, Cooper, accompanying him, he decided to put on his backpack and walk across the country, starting at upstate New York, dipping into the south, and then walking northwest until he reached the Pacific coast in Oregon. Along the way, he pitched the story of his trip to an editor at National Geographic, and the magazine too agreed to let him write about it. Cooper died along the way, and about halfway through his trip, when he was in the Deep South, Jenkins found God at a revival and then found his wife at a seminary college in New Orleans. That wife was Barbara Jenkins, who was a student at that seminary and in a whirlwind romance while Peter was staying in New Orleans, married him and then agreed to go with him on his journey. It took them until 1979 to finally reach the Pacific, and they walked the last mile or so with about 100 people who were family and some whom they met along the way. The result was two books, which were huge bestsellers, as well as a third, The Road Unseen, which was about the role that their faith played in their journey. I didn't seek that one out because, as I said in my original episode, I'm not religious, and so the religion angle was not as important to me as was the journey and the people who were part of it. It was interesting, especially considering that I've read or seen a number of these types of pieces that were divorced from religion or faith. I finished the two books something like a year and a half ago. They stayed with me in a big way. Part of it definitely was their time capsule aspect. I was reading them nearly 50 years later, and Peter Jenkins began his trip four years before I was born, and they finished it when I was about two years old. It shows me an America that I've only ever seen in movies or photographs, and an America that existed outside of my suburban upbringing. Much like William Least Heat Moon kept to the small highways and backroads and blue highways, the Jenkins wandered through small towns, farms, and places even more desolate than that. Sure, there are stops in a couple of major cities, but the two of them aren't exactly taking the time to talk about the food served at Maryland House off of Interstate 95. I think that what also fascinated me was the people, especially Peter and Barbara Jenkins themselves. As I mentioned back in episode 137, reading the books led me to wonder where they are now. And since we have the internet in 2023, reading up on the aftermath of the trip, as well as what happened to them and the people they met, was fairly easy, and it was kind of fun. I even found a documentary about the farm. That was the commune in Tennessee that Peter stayed on for a few months during the first leg of his trip. It's actually where Cooper, his dog, uh, was hit by a truck and killed. The, the documentary, by the way, is called American Commune. I think it's still on Amazon Prime if you're interested in watching it. 
Uh, Jenkins is not mentioned in the movie, but the two filmmakers do a great job recounting the history of the movement that led to the establishment of the commune and how the commune itself worked, endured, and then eventually broke down. Back to our works at hand, though. One thing that I discovered while doing my research is that Peter and Barbara Jenkins divorced. And from what I read, it was a pretty contemptuous divorce. And I'd learned that in an interview with her that I'd listened to and prepped for that episode during which she talked about possibly writing her own story. That's what we get in So Long As It's Wild, which debuted on September 11th, 2023. Now, I have to confess that I didn't know that either of the books I'm talking about right now were coming out. I glanced at both Barbara and Jedediah Jenkins' Instagram pages over the last couple of years, but I never really dug deep into them. I just happened one day to be killing time in Barnes & Noble. And so you're doing that thing, you know, and I do that thing, what I do is just I wander around the store and take pictures of books I might want to read, and then I go find them at the library or another bookstore or something. So on a whim, and with time to kill, I decided to check out if there was anything interesting in the travel writing section. Honestly, I wasn't expecting to find anything. Most of the travel memoirs I've seen as of late tend to focus on far-off places I'm not really that interested in, or they're of the eat, pray, love variety. But I saw the name Barbara Jenkins on the spine of a book, and I thought, isn't this the same? And it was. The title is So Long As It's Wild, Standing Strong After My Famous Walk Across America. The summary reads, From the New York Times bestselling co-author of The Walk West comes Barbara Jenkins' long-awaited tale, revealing the story of her walk across America, a journey that captured the national media spotlight. From the untold narrative of her impoverished Ozarks hillbilly upbringing to the crushing aftermath of the walk and her journey toward newfound courage and strength, so long as it's wild, is her story. I noticed her son's book right next to it. I'll get to that one soon, but I had to grab both of them. I read So Long As It's Wild in about a day over the course of Thanksgiving weekend. Being very familiar with the Walk Across America story, it was easy to get into. And getting her perspective on the walk was a great hook, especially since I found the sections of the Walk West that she wrote and narrated just as, if not more intriguing than what was filtered through the perspective of her then-husband. Like the description says, the book alternates between stories of Barbara's upbringing in the Ozarks and her time on the walk with Peter, as well as its aftermath. It's a good structure, especially for me who was familiar with their trip and might have found myself saying, I read this already when she was recapping the walk part. I didn't because I was looking forward to reading what she had to say. Barbara's upbringing was harsh, as are the setbacks after her marriage to Peter falls apart due to his infidelity. I will say that the walk and the aftermath were the biggest reasons I was there, obviously, but the way her upbringing informs everything winds up being vital to that narrative. Barbara Jenkins grew up not only in serious poverty, but with parents who treated her horribly that were often abusive. When she details the way that her ex-husband would let his temper fly and how their marriage was more often than not just two people simply existing in the same place instead of a true partnership, you see the trope of the cycle repeating itself. What sets this apart, though, is her tone as a writer. There's a very natural conversational voice at work here, 
And that makes you feel comfortable while listening to these stories and helps Barbara avoid falling into the trap of going so into her pain that all you do is feel sorry for her. It's been so many years since it all happened. Her narration sounds like she has made a certain amount of peace with all of it. And she's telling her story because it just needs to be told. And like I said, if you've read both Walk Across America books, the shift in perspective is an honest and even a refreshing one. When I read those two books, I saw Peter Jenkins as someone who was at one point lost and disillusioned and obviously found something through the accomplishment and the journey, but I also saw someone who is quite flawed. While his narration comes off as being fully aware of this disillusionment, I don't know how much he fully acknowledges those flaws. In so long as it's wild, Barbara Jenkins could have really done a number on him. And while she does not pull any punches on what their trip together and their marriage was really like, it's less spill the tea and more here's my view of it and here's how I got through it. I will admit that it makes me like Peter Jenkins less. But I appreciate having this added layer of honesty and reality. Since A Walk Across America, other people have taken similar trips, and many have documented in blog form or on social media. But those were so crafted and curated, and they didn't show off many of the warts. And if they did, it was only certain warts that they were willing to show. Plus, we rarely get the aftermath of those journeys and the answer to the question, where are they now? Well, unless they've transitioned into trying to be influencers or something. A Walk Across America and The Walk West were huge successes for them. It made them notable and famous. But notoriety is short-lived, at least until you do the next thing to keep yourself in the spotlight. If you don't, you wind up being a trivia question. So long as it's wild gives us how difficult the spotlight and leaving that spotlight truly is. But as much as I came to dislike Peter Jenkins or least like him less. And as much as I enjoyed her storytelling, Barbara Jenkins is not without her flaws. In fact, she has a number of problematic views that stem from her evangelical Christianity and constant consumption of right-wing media. And that's at the root of the conflict between her and her son Jedediah in his book, Mother Nature. Now, if you listen to episode 137, you'll remember that I talked about Jedediah Jenkins' book, To Shake the Sleeping Self, which detailed his bike ride from Oregon to the very tip of South America. Barbara Jenkins played a role in it, mostly as his concerned mother, and she did travel to see him and hike with him at the very end. But amidst all her worry was also a deeply held belief that her son's homosexuality is wrong. This creates an enormous inner conflict for him. I love my mother, but as a gay man, how can I accept the fact that she sees who I am as wrong and as a sin? This is on full display in Mother Nature, as it's the story of a road trip they took together to retrace her steps from the walk west. Here's the book's summary. When his mother Barbara turns 70, Jedediah Jenkins is reminded of a sobering truth. Our parents won't live forever. For years, he and Barbara have talked about taking a trip together, just the two of them. 
They disagree about politics, about God, about the project of society, disagreements that hurt. But they love thrift stores, they love eating at diners, they love true crime, and they love each other. Jedediah wants to step into Barbara's world and get to know her in a way that occasional visits haven't allowed. They land on an idea to retrace the thousands of miles Barbara trekked with Jedediah's father, travel writer Peter Jenkins, as part of the Walk Across America book trilogy that became a sensation in the 1970s. Beginning in New Orleans, they set off for the Oregon coast, listening to podcasts about outlaws and cult leaders, the only media they can agree on, while reliving the journey that changed Barbara's life. Jedediah discovers who Barbara was as a 30-year-old writer walking across America and who she is now as a parent who loves her son yet holds on to a version of faith that sees his sexuality as a sin. Along the way, he peels back the layers of questions millions are asking today. How do we stay in a relationship when it hurts? When do boundaries turn into separation? When do we stand up for ourselves? And when do we let it go? Tender, smart, and profound, Mother Nature is a story of remarkable mother-son bond and a moving meditation on the complexities of love. So like I said earlier, this book is essentially the sequel to the Jenkins' famous Walk Across America books, or at least the Walk West, since it's Jedediah's relationship with Barbara and not Peter that is the focus. Peter Jenkins does not make an appearance during the road trip. Jedediah mentions him in a few relevant moments, though, when he's recollecting a motorcycle trip he took with his dad in the Pacific Northwest, and when his dad, out of the blue, mind you, says that if he ever decided to get married to another man, he would definitely attend his wedding. But Jedediah has always been closer to Barbara, and her rejection of his homosexuality is the elephant in the room whenever they are together. In fact, the book starts with the famous blind men and the elephant parable that serves as an extended metaphor. Him taking the road trip is a source of worry, because while he has done trips with his mother before, Jed's always extended the invite to one of his mother's friends. That friend has always served as a buffer between the two of them. This time, though, there's no buffer, and Jedediah wants to make sure that they have a serious talk and not just acknowledge that elephant in the room, but confront it. I will say that I loved this as much as I loved So Long As It's Wild and both Walk Across America books, and I loved it even more than I enjoyed To Shake the Sleeping Self. I think it's because this book explores their journey through the lens of their relationship and its conflicts. I also think it's because as a narrator, Jedediah Jenkins understands his own humanity and fully realizes its flaws. That is really important when you're exploring the tense relationship between two people, but only getting it from the perspective of one of them. Jedediah fully understands that he's making his mom the antagonist of the story here. In fact, he uses that exact word at one point, but also does not shy away from fully giving his views instead of, quote, staying fair. Barbara Jenkins' at first glance in the book comes off as a caricature of an aging conservative boomer. She loves watching violent crime dramas. And seriously, this is such a boomer thing, by the way. My parents are boomers. They're actually around Barbara's age. They love watching Blue Bloods. I, I cannot explain this. Anyway. 
Barbara also listens to conservative talk radio all day. She takes colloidal silver and also uses other so-called cures and protections that one would see or hear advertised and advocated for in conservative media. She hasn't been vaccinated against COVID. She does not mask, but she, and she still holds the deeply seated beliefs of evangelical Christianity. To your average progressive on social media, especially those on Twitter and TikTok, all of these characteristics are immediate disqualifications. Even I went into this trip with my guard up. But I think that is what Jedediah wanted us to do because the fact that he would still have a relationship with his mother and still talk about how much he loves her is confusing as hell. But on the other hand, it's all very realistic. He's about eight years younger than I am, so we sit on opposite sides of the Nirvana-Britney Spears generational divide. And while I cannot relate to the struggle of being gay when you have an ultra-conservative parent and you were raised in that exact environment, I can relate to having wildly different views than a number of people in my family, both immediate and extended. In that regard, this book is a window, and the story and the way he tells it provides a sliding glass door. And as the two of them traveled, I am as frustrated as he is by her unwillingness to accept him and constantly puzzled by her quirks. Plus, I do find her charming in a number of places. Now, maybe this is because I've read three other books and I've gotten to, quote, know Barbara Jenkins through them before I even looked at Mother Nature. So she's always been very human to me. But I will say that in his humanizing of his mother, Jedediah Jenkins gives us the ability to see where all of this is coming from. We're still allowed to be frustrated and even angry, though, no matter how much understanding we achieve. In fact, the very messy resolution to their conflict of beliefs is so frustrating that in an ironic way, it's satisfying. I mean, it goes without saying that these things are never wrapped up in a nice little package. The book is full of nuance, and that nuance is so lacking in our social spaces and our discussions these days. But amidst all of Jenkins' pondering of his sexuality and how his mother has reacted to it, is the trip itself, which was my reason for picking up the book in the first place. When they set out from Nashville to New Orleans, Barbara has brought along her copy of The Walk West, as well as notes and journals that she had kept from the 70s. Jedediah acknowledges that they aren't likely to meet anyone from the trip because so much time has passed and all of those people are, quote, lost or have passed on. Instead, they search for the different locations and when appropriate, Barbara tells some of her stories, a number of which Jedediah has never heard since his parents don't go into great detail about it around him. And he's actually never read the books. I know some of the stories, of course, but as a writer, Jedediah can't assume that most of his readers would have read both Walk Across America books. So we, as along with him, are tourists in a sense, as Barbara winds up being an, as excellent a guide as she was 45 years ago. I won't go into detail about all of the trip because I really recommend that you read this book. I'm going to talk about a few of the highlights that can especially jump out at me. The first one is more superficial, but you can't not think about the way some of the places they walked through back in the 1970s have changed. At one point, the two are driving through Utah, and Barbara comments on the way the suburban sprawl has changed so much of the area. 
This is something I have witnessed through my adulthood, living in both Northern Virginia and Central Virginia. The landscape and character of the places change as more housing developments and shopping centers are built. Sometimes you barely even notice it, at least until you either move away or it just kind of hits you one day. But on the flip side, much of the terrain of the West hasn't changed. So much of it remains untainted. Wildlife still roam and live in their undisturbed habitat. And it looks exactly like it did in the 70s. At one point, because of Barbara's extraordinary memory, they find the spot on the highway where one of the photos in the Walk West was taken. In another, she recalls where she got hit by a car. Another time, she tells Jedediah about her and Peter being stalked by a car full of criminals. It's all there, vivid in her memory and her notes, which wows him and in turn wows us. And one that really stood out to me was early in the trip when they're driving across what is the barren expanse of West Texas and they find the house where Peter and Barbara stayed for a little while with Homer and Ruby Martin. This was an old farmer couple who were living in their house in a very simple way and whose lessons for the Jenkins were those of two people who had both simple wisdom and tremendous experience. What Barbara and Jedediah come upon is different. Here's an excerpt. We park and mom opens the door possessed. We have to step high over the tall grass and gnarled weeds. The front door is sealed with a padlock. The windows boarded up. Mom stands in the yard and puts her hands on her hips. This is the house, I believe. I'm just pretty sure that is it. It's abandoned now, I say. Oh yeah, well they died years ago and they built that house. That, this was their ranch, 320 acres of wheat and cotton. They were what's called dry ranchers because they had no creek or river for a water source, just rain. They grew cotton and it came up all the way to this porch. You couldn't have a grass yard on a dry ranch. But Homer and Ruby were in their mid-60s when they met us. Never had any children and they scraped by a hard life out here on the edge of the west. Toughest, best people you could ever find. And they treated Peter and me like we were their family. On the front porch is a loose brick that has the word Texas pressed into it. I'm taking this as a souvenir, I say. I feel like I need to take something from this moment. My mom is wrapped in a blanket of rushing memories. I think this is it. It looks different. It's been 40 years. No one's been here in a long time. Her tone is reaching for the feeling, but the coldness of this forgotten house, a temple to entropy, quiets her. She squints as if to say it doesn't look exactly as it should. Or does it? She battles the cruel truth that what we remember does not stay as it was, and maybe never was what you remember at all. Fact overlapping with feeling, exaggeration, and gaps filled with imagination. I put the brick in the trunk and we drive away toward Amarillo. Mom's hands are folded in her lap. It's a moment that's amazing and sad at the same time. That the house still stands and the area hasn't been overrun by townhome developments is a surprise and a bit awe-inspiring. I know their house isn't like Mount Vernon or Monticello or anything, but as far as their story is concerned, there is history there. And to be able to stand there and see things in a way similar to all those years ago is incredible. The sadness, of course, comes from it being left there. Homer and Ruby were in their 60s when Peter and Barbara met them in the 70s, so the possibility of them being there in 2021 was slim to none. In fact, Homer died in 2003, 
Ruby passed away in 2005. The house, therefore, is this ghost that speaks of our anonymity when it comes to our passing. And that so many of us don't take the time to get to know the story of a place beyond what we see at a glance. I'm honestly grateful and I'm glad these stories exist. They keep me grounded, especially during such strange, uncertain, and stressful times. They also serve as a reminder of what it is out there in our society beyond all the caricaturist performing we see on our screens. This sounds pretentious as hell, but I often find myself looking for authenticity, and it's in books like these where I've been landing. I hope that we don't stop taking the time to chronicle and examine our people in these ways, because there's so much value in it, and there's so many lessons to learn. So thank you very much for coming along with me. I'll put links to all the books I talked about on this show, as well as social media links for the authors in the show notes. If you decide to buy the books, I recommend skipping the big A and looking for an independent bookstore, either with an online presence or local to you and have them special order it. If you have read them and you're interested in telling me what you thought, or if you're interested in telling me what you thought about this episode, drop me a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Insta, or an email. I'll be back in February with an all-new episode, and this time I'm going to catch up once again with my other blog, The Uncollecting. How has the past year of uncollecting gone, and what other pieces of popular culture can I think to link the concept to? Come back to find out. Until then, as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.